Well, for those of you who were not here last week, we are in a short series called Living Under the Reign of a King. We're going to be looking at the life of David. Last week, we noted that we are living in an extraordinarily divisive time in the United States. We're divided politically. We're divided uh, culturally. We're not, we're not living in a time of great unity with, with each other. And so we asked this question. How do we as Christians, not Republicans or Democrats, not as citizens of the country, but as followers of Jesus, how do we live under the reign of a little K king, under authority of a president or governor or legislature, a boss, team leader, whatever relevant level of leadership we're, we're serving under? And we looked at 1 Samuel 8 and 12, and we saw that Israel demanded of God a king to rule over them. They weren't content with the polity and the structure he had put in place. They said, we want a king because we want to be like all the other nations around us. And so Samuel, the prophet and judge of Israel, anointed Saul. And Israel looked around and saw that Saul was a head taller than all the other men in Israel. They said, he has the appearance of greatness. We want him because we want a king who will go out and fight our battles for us. So Samuel anoints Saul. And what we learned was that it's easier to trust in an imperfect king we can see than a perfect king we cannot. And the call was to serve God with all of our heart and consider what great things he's done for us and to put our hope and our allegiance in King Jesus alone. So again, how do we live under the reign of a king? The answer we said, we do so. We live under authority by allowing that king, whether by their upright conduct or utter corruption, whatever the case may be, to direct our hearts to King Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the throne of God, who will ultimately govern all creation with perfect righteousness. Now, I used an illustration last week. I was talking about how we shouldn't presume upon our own wisdom. We should defer to the greater wisdom of God. And I told a story about how when I was 11, there was this skunk hat that I wanted, and I was, I was talked into a better decision of not getting it. Anyway, I was traveling for work this week. I got home yesterday, and at my front door was an Amazon package, and inside, a skunk hat. And it's not an anonymous gift. I don't know who sent this. And there was a note. It said, Christian, no child should have to go without a skunk hat. <laughs> Wear this with pride, for you've already landed the girl, and there's no need to be cool anymore. And uh, so what a, what a generous congregation we have. Uh, and I thought it would be maybe good to start this morning with a story about another time I was 11 and I really wanted this 2017 Ford F-150 and I didn't get it, so we'll just leave that there and kind of see what happens. This week we're going to look at the life of David and we're going to have the same thesis question in mind. How do we as Christians live under the reign of a king? Now, I love the brain. I'm fascinated by the brain. And God has designed the brain to, to govern us as people, right? It's the epicenter of our thoughts and our emotions. It tells our body what to do. It's how we perceive the world. And so I read uh, a lot of psychology. And cognitive psychologists have identified a fascinating perceptual phenomenon called change blindness. Change blindness occurs when we're looking at something and there's a change, but we can't see it. We're blind to it. And I think this is, is interesting and instructive because what it means is we think we see the world more clearly than we really do. We don't really see things as clearly as we think. And so as we read the Old Testament, particularly, it's instructive to us as to how to look with, with more acuity, with, with uh, a close attention to what's really happening. So uh, take a look at this, this quick video just as a, a primer and a test on your own uh, ability to see clearly. 
you're about to see two images switching back and forth in rapid succession. See if you can spot the difference between them. And keep your eyes fixed on the center of the screen. Here we go. Did you spot the change? Let's watch it again with the benefit of attention. Pay attention to the trousers worn by the man on the far left. But as before, keep your gaze on the center of the screen. That way it's only your attention that will move. Did the change seem to leap out at you this time? All right, let's do another one. Again, try to spot the change, keeping your eyes focused on the center. Almost everyone misses this one. The professor once showed it to a class of students who over a minute and nobody saw it. But just try it again with the benefit of focused attention. Pay attention to the car window on the right. Again, keep your eyes fixed on the center of the screen. All right, one final. An example that shows just how amazing attention is. Here we go, center of the screen. Now try again, but this time pay attention to the background behind President Jackson. See at this time, most people only spot the change the second time, even though they were staring at it all along. So this shows us that we're not really as smart as we think. We're not really seeing as clearly as we think. So maybe when we're staring right at something, even if it's very familiar, we don't always see it like we should. And we said that the Old Testament, it's hard to read, it's hard to understand because we don't, we're not familiar with the political and culture and cultural and economic context. And so sometimes when we're trying to read the Old Testament, we just give up because we don't quite understand. Today we're going to look at a story found in 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath. Probably a familiar story for many of us. It was my favorite story as a kid because it has a hero and a villain and war and violence and those things are what captivated me as an eight-year-old. So we're not going to read the whole chapter, but let me recap the story. The setting is the Valley of Elah. And on one hill stands the army of Israel, God's chosen people, and opposing them, the Philistine army, their sworn enemies. And the Philistines are represented by their champion named Goliath. And Goliath is a literal giant. He's a gargantuan. The text goes to great lengths to describe his height, how big he is, how his armor is incredibly oversized. What we see in verse 8 is that Goliath comes down into the valley and he challenges Israel and he says, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Now remember that Israel had wanted a king, specifically a king who would go out and fight their battles for them in this kind of a scenario to be their champion. And they looked around and they said, hey, Saul is taller than all the other guys around here. Let's have him. And now here it is, Saul has an opportunity to fulfill his role, to be the biggest dude on Israel's side, to go down and face off with the giant, but Saul is nowhere to be found in that valley. Saul is behind his men offering economic incentives, trying to convince someone else in the army to go down. And then we're introduced to David, the shepherd boy. David is the youngest of four boys, 
and he's in the fields tending sheep. And his father says, David, I want you to take this food, run it up to your older brothers who are on the front lines. And so David heads up there. And as he enters camp, here's what he sees. Goliath stepping down into the valley and challenging and mocking Israel. And it says in in, uh, verse 24, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, Goliath, they fled from him and were much afraid. So this is the scene that David encounters. And he begins to ask the Israeli soldiers, guys, what's going on here? This guy's coming into the valley and he's mocking the army of the people of God. And you're hiding. Why is no one going down to face him? And they said, listen, man, the guy's huge. We're not going to go down there. And Saul's not even going down there. But if, if anyone will go and win, Saul will give them a tax-free life and access to his daughter as a wife and all these things. So David says, man, I'm going to go. I'm not going to let this stand. And so he goes up to Saul, the king, and he says, Saul, I want to go and fight this guy. And Saul says, you'll never make it. It's not going to work. And he says, I'm a shepherd and lions and bears come after my flock and I can fight them off. I'm not scared of this guy. Verse 37, and David said to Saul, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Saul immediately tries to put armor on David, a helmet and a breastplate and a shield. Now David's probably 18 years old, roughly. And either he's not grown into his, his full frame yet, or maybe he's just not a very big guy. In any case, the armor doesn't fit him. And so he puts it down. He says, I can't work with this. He picks up his shepherd's staff. He picks up a sling and five smooth stones, and he heads down into the valley. And as he descends, verse 43 says, The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David puts a stone in the sling. He whips it around. The rock flies through the air. hits, hits Goliath square in the head. Goliath falls over. David has no sword. He runs over. He takes Goliath's sword out of its sheath And he cuts the head off of the giant. And it says that the Philistine army fled before Israel. Now about six years before this, Samuel, the prophet and judge of Israel, had in secret anointed David as the next king. Remember, he anointed Saul at Israel's demand. The Lord removed his hand from Saul. And Saul goes in and appoints appoints David. And he's just been, been waiting. And so this episode is his public debut. It's his functional coronation. And eventually, the people of Israel begin to sing a song that says, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. We thought Saul was great, but David is ten times better than Saul. And so it's going to divide the kingdom. And they're going to be cut down the middle. And some people are going to give their allegiance to Saul, and some people are going to want to follow David. And so we ask the question, how do we live in a divided culture under the reign of a king? 
Now, traditionally, this story is taught with a lot of different applications or understandings. Maybe this story means that with God, we can overcome the giants in our life, the giant of fear, the giant of failure. Maybe it means that we can't try to wear someone else's armor. We have to be who God created us to be. Maybe it means that the key to victory is relying on God's power rather than our own. Or maybe more simply, it just shows us that an underdog can outperform expectations. I think all of those are very reasonable uh, objects of the story. Each of those would be correct learnings from the story we just read. But in light of our question this week, how do we as Christians live under the reign of authority, of a king? I want to ask that question of the text and then just make two observations. And then we're going to talk about the point of the story. Why is this story in the Bible at all? First observation. We recognize God's provision even in flawed leaders. We recognize God's provision even in flawed leaders. Israel demanded a king and God said, that's not going to go well with you. It's not a good idea, but he capitulated to give him Saul and he provides for Israel through Saul, though he was an imperfect king. He's disobedient. He's unrepentant. God eventually removes his hand from Saul. And then in this story, we say, we see God providing through David, but David is a flawed leader. He's undersized. He's ill-equipped. He doesn't look the part. He's not the part. Later, he's going to prove himself to be morally weak. And yet God provides through flawed leaders. Even more than flawed leaders, God even provides through evil leaders. If you read Romans 9, verse 17, the apostle Paul there makes an argument. And he references Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh was the king of Egypt who held Israel in captivity. And Moses was appointed to lead people in the Exodus out of Egypt. Here's what the apostle Paul argues. It says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So Pharaoh is lifted up to leadership by God's sovereignty, even though he was an oppressive leader who would subjugate the people of God, so that God's power might be demonstrated in all the earth. God provides through flawed leaders. And this truth cuts both ways for us. So if you're someone who doesn't perceive flaws in your leader, your president, your legislature, your boss, your teacher, whatever the relevant level of leadership is, if you don't perceive flaws and, and you think of them as a perfect leader or a near-perfect leader, you think of them so highly, they, they're on a pedestal in your mind. I mean, we see this in places like North Korea. Some people honor Kim Jong-un, their leader, as a kind of god. The most ardent Republicans and Democrats in our own culture tend to esteem the candidate of the day and minimize their faults as though they don't really matter if they exist at all. And so if that's us, we have to recognize that men and women are sinful and imperfect and there's no such thing as a flawless leader this side of heaven. So if you're putting your hope in an appointed or elected leader, know that it is not well placed. Don't allow a leader or a narrative to beguile you into esteeming a king appointed or elected, more than you ought. But it cuts both ways. So if you're someone, on the other hand, who all you can see is the flaws, and you look at the leadership and you go, how is this reality? How did this person get that position, that job, this appointment? They're terrible. If that's all you can see, know that God will provide despite their flaws. God provides even through flawed leaders. And then our second observation. Be prayerfully critical of policy, not a hateful critic of the person. 
Learn to be perfectly critical of policy, not a hateful critic of the person. As David began ascending to power, he received criticism immediately from both sides, from inside and outside the camp. Look at verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when David spoke to the men. Remember, David came into the camp and he's talking to the soldiers and going, what's the situation here? Why is nobody going down? Eliab hears this and it says that his anger was kindled against David. He said to him, why have you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. He says, David, you're a spectator. You're a voyeur here for entertainment. Why don't you go back to your pedestrian menial job of watching the sheep and leave war to the men? Immediately met with criticism. And then he goes before Saul to offer to go meet the giant. And Saul criticizes him. Verse 33, Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight him for you're but a youth. And he's been a man of war since his youth. Now God had, a, God had anointed David. God had inspired David to take a courageous step of obedience, empowered by his spirit to go do this thing. And when he goes before the establishment, he faces immediate ridicule. David, you're a boy among men. You can't do this. You're not equipped. You won't succeed at this. And then, even from outside the camp, look what happens when he, when he goes into the valley. Verse 22. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth. Verse 43. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? You don't have the right stuff. You look like a fool. I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds of the air. And so David, immediately as he rises to power and takes his place, he's met with Harsh criticism from inside and outside the camp. And this is axiomatic for leaders. Leaders are subject to intense criticism. They always have a target on their back, which that's a hard reality for, for anybody, no matter how powerful or proud or impervious to criticism they seem. Even the most self-absorbed narcissist feels the sting of repeated criticism. They're carrying an intense load. Many leaders are facing a level of scrutiny that most people would just crumble beneath. But again, this cuts both ways. So if you're someone who looks at leadership and, and you say, well, yeah, most people would crumble under that scrutiny. But this leader is, is such an X, Y, Z. They're so like this and that that they're oblivious. They don't crumble because their character is flawed. Remember that they're in that position by God's sovereignty. Now, it may be that he has allowed them permissively to be there, even though it goes against his express instruction for how things should work, like King Saul. Or maybe he's designed it and he's appointed that person very specifically in line with his will. And either way, they're there by God's sovereignty. And so the call for us is to be prayerfully critical of the policy, but not to be a hateful critic of the person. The number of people who have been persuaded to place their faith in Jesus because of an angry rant on Facebook is zero. The number of people who have been swayed to your side of the political aisle because of a diatribe that you gave around the water cooler at work is zero. Being a hateful critic of the person is not what God wants of us and it's not effective. And so we pray for our leaders. If you perceive glaring flaws in the leaders in your life, do what you can in grace to help them, to pray for them. Look at 1 Timothy 2. Verse 1, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now listen, verse 2, for kings 
and all who were in high positions. And I have to confess to you that while I was preparing this, I was convicted by this because there are leaders in my life that I do not pray for. And there are specific leaders in my life that, that I really dislike and that I, I don't think they do a good job and I don't think they're competent to be where they are. And, I, and so I'm filled with pride and I'm tempted to become a hateful critic and I don't pray for them. And so I had to repent of that this week and I had to spend focused time praying for people in positions of leadership. Now I want to make the point that helping and praying for and resisting a leader are not mutually exclusive responses. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. led a resistance to the racist, sinful, God-dishonoring, oppressive leaders of pre-civil rights South, that did not exclude him from praying for and trying to help those same leaders. There were self-proclaimed pastors who bought into the racist Jim Crow worldview that needed to be both genuinely prayed for and resisted. Those are not mutually exclusive. Now it cuts both ways. So on the other hand, if you love the leaders in your life and you're tempted to esteem them incredibly highly, they're on a pedestal and you think they're the hope of our nation, they're the hope of our school, they're the hope of our company, they're the hope of our church, then to you, we have to to recognize that just because they're in a position of leadership doesn't necessarily mean that God is pleased with the policies that they're operating under. Just because they're in that position doesn't mean that God is pleased with them. Just because they say that something is right doesn't mean that it is or that that's how it should go. And that's true at every level of leadership. Right now, you should be prayerfully critical of what I'm saying and make sure that it aligns with the scripture so that I'm not, just because I'm standing behind a little pulpit doesn't mean that what I'm saying is true. So you have to be prayerfully critical. Search the scriptures. 1 John 4, Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now this is speaking specifically about spiritual leadership and teaching. And it's saying to be discerning. Don't just accept things at face value because someone says that it's so. But I think it's a very reasonable extension to understand what the scriptures call us to. Is to be cunning, be discerning, be aware. Just because someone says something is right doesn't mean that that aligns with what God's desire is. So for you, you're not a hateful critic of the person, and that's great, but you need to be prayerfully critical of the policy because our primary and sole allegiance is to King Jesus. Any policy that runs contrary to his kingdom, we align with King Jesus. Any policy that doesn't align with his agenda, we reject. And so we have to be prayerfully critical of policy. If you're enamored with leader, become prayerfully critical in your assessment to ensure that your allegiance remains with King Jesus. If you're enraged, become prayerful for their wisdom, for their flourishing, for their repentance, and for their joy, and temper your speech so that you're not a hateful critic of the person. So first observation, recognize God provides even through flawed leaders. Second observation, be prayerfully critical of policy, not a hateful critic of the person. And then last, let your ultimate allegiance and your ultimate hope be singular. Why? because a better king is coming. A better king is coming. Every story whispers his name. Have you ever seen a movie by M. Night Shyamala or The the Sixth Sense, right? These movies where you watch the whole movie and then there's an ending and it's a twist ending and it blows your mind and you go, oh, I did not see that coming, but it changes everything. 
Oh, you mean the reason he could see the little kid is because he was dead too? They all could see dead people. Wait a minute, I have to rethink everything now. That means the first scene in the movie in the stairwell, oh yeah, it makes sense because he was dead. And it's the same way when we learn to read the Old Testament that it points to Jesus. It all points to his suffering and dying and rising and conquering sin and death and giving us victory. In John 5, Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisees. Who were, they were experts in the Bible, experts in the Hebrew Scriptures. And here's what he says to them. He says, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very Scriptures that testify about me. You look at the pages of this book, you look at the words that are written, and you think that there's life there. Yes, because they point to me. Change your focus. See clearly. Luke 24, after Jesus has been crucified and buried and risen, he appears to two men on their way to a city called Emmaus. Verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that means the whole Bible, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He asked these guys, hey, do you guys know the Bible? Have you read the scriptures? And they say, yeah. And he goes, do you understand it? I don't know. And he starts to explain to them how every story Every prophecy points to Jesus. So he interprets for them that all of that that they had read culminates in Jesus. Now this story of David and Goliath, it's typically read to mean something like, hey, David had faith and courage, he took a risk for God, and so should we. I mean, even the observations that we made this morning, that God provides through flawed leaders, and that we should be perfectly critical of policy, not a hateful critic of the person, those are fine observations, and I think they're accurate observations. And those are good takeaways from the story. But that's not the point of the story. That's not why this story is in the Bible. Take a look at this painting by an artist named Caravaggio. Now, if you were here last week, you saw we had a Rembrandt up here. And today we have a Caravaggio. So I don't care what those Houstonians inside the loop say. We can have culture in the suburbs. <laughs> All right? Now, if you, were, if you were in Venice and you walked by this painting hanging on the wall, maybe you're not an art expert. I'm certainly not. What, what are some observations you would, you would make, right? You've read a little bit. Well, maybe you look at this and you say, well, yeah, look at the foreshortening. Look at the way that Goliath's head is so much larger than David. And it shows the contrast of their age and experience. Yeah, that's a good observation. And you say, well, look at the violence of the encounter. Look at the way that there's blood dripping from the bottom of his neck. It's like, yeah, that's, that's an accurate observation. But maybe then you take a step back because you hear that there's a tour guide and he's providing some commentary on the painting. And all of a sudden... He makes the point that, um, yeah, you know the object that David's carrying on his shoulder there? It's pretty clear that that's a sword. We can all see that. But what, what does the form point to? What, is it, what does it elicit in your mind? What's it in the shape of? A cross. David's carrying a cross on his back. What does that sound like? Jesus carrying a cross on his back as he ascends the hill of Golgotha towards his crucifixion. It's very clear that the reason David has his left hand extended in front is because he's He's showing the head of Goliath who he has conquered. And it's clear that his right hand is up here because he's holding the sword. But, but what, what image does this point to? What does it elicit? He's cruciform. David is pointing us to Jesus. Do you see it in the painting? Do you see it in the story? When we look deeper. This story is not just about overcoming the giants in our lives or having faith that God can help us overcome large obstacles. The point of this story is that a better king is coming. All right, so we've talked about change blindness. We've learned a little cognitive psychology. We've learned to have better attention. We've learned how to look at art a little bit. 
all of this to show that we need to learn how to look at the scriptures more closely and carefully. All right, so a little test just to see how much we've progressed. Take a look at this. Watch the white team and see if you can, it's going to go fast, see if you can count how many passes they make. All right, take a look at this. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? All right, we're getting better, but we still have some work to do, right? It's okay. The next two weeks, we're going to continue to look at David, and we're going to get better. So in conclusion, this story is about a king from humble means who rescues the people from the tyranny of their enemy without the people lifting a finger. David is a pre-runner for Jesus. Jesus is the truer and better David. The point of the story isn't for us to be like David, but rather that there's one better than David who has come and freed us from our greatest enemies without us lifting a finger. We're not David in the story. As we read this, we're tempted to put ourselves in the position of the hero. We're not David in the story. We're Israel. We're cowering under the tyranny of our enemy, needing rescuing from a king. And when we see that our king has come and that he's rescued us and that he's coming again, it produces courage in our hearts, strength and hope. Because if our greatest enemies of sin and death have been put away, then we need not fear lesser enemies like fear and sickness and Judgment from peers or failure. David was outnumbered and overmatched. Jesus is unrivaled and unmatched. David won a temporary victory to save his people for a time. Jesus won an ultimate victory and saves his people for all time. David takes the throne as a strong but sinful king. Jesus takes his throne as the sovereign and sinless king. David took a life to inaugurate his kingship. Jesus gave his life to inaugurate his we live under the reign of a king, a little K king, by allowing that king, whether by their upright conduct or utter corruption, whatever the circumstance, to direct our heart to King Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the throne of God, who will ultimately govern all creation in perfect righteousness. So this morning, let's not place our hope in presidents or politicians, in organizations or businesses, in systems or structures. Why? because a better king has come, and a better king is coming. That's our hope. Let me pray for us as we close. Father God, we recognize this morning your goodness towards us, and Jesus, we thank you for being our king who has come and saved us and freed us from the enemies of death and sin. We couldn't do it on our own. We were cowering in fear. We were hopeless and helpless. And by your life and death and resurrection, you have freed us from those things. And so we thank you, Jesus. God, if there's anyone here this morning who has never acknowledged with their lips that Jesus is Lord or understood that he's the king of all the universe and that ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, God, I pray that by grace you would soften their hearts this morning to see it 
and to bow their knee to you, to, to simply whisper a prayer, Jesus, I need you to be my king. Father, thank you for your grace in the scriptures, for showing us what is true and good and noble and directing our attention to those things so that we might dwell on it and we might be changed by you. God, be with us as we go this week as worshipers and as people who hold out the gospel of life to our coworkers and friends and neighbors. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.